hope that this class would be made optional. It says on the uh, sheet over there that some of the classes are optional. I don't want anyone to feel like they have to be here if they don't want to be here. If you'd rather uh, go and learn a sicha or learn some mishnayos or something like that, uh, there's nothing to say that this is any more worthwhile than that. In fact, maybe just the opposite. But uh, hopefully some of it will be interesting. Some of it will, be, uh, will bring out some questions. The, thing, the, the sessions that I've sat in on in the last couple of days with as part of the program, um, the questions, it seems to me, have been at least as good, if not better, than some of the discussions and what's been taught. So what I'd like to do is talk for a little while about a few ideas and a few things that are of interest to me and a few authors that are of interest to me and then uh, leave a lot of time, maybe like half the time or so, for questions at the end because I'm sure people have questions and want to talk about things and I am ready and willing and open to talk about anything that you want to talk about. So you bring things up and I'll talk and you can ask each other and everything. The title of the talk is supposed to be uh, Literature and Hasidic Philosophy, right? So what I thought I would do is tell you a little bit about uh, my work, my interests, my research, and mention a few, uh, a few authors and maybe read to you a few short passages just to sort of, sort of demonstrate, typify a couple of ideas and things that I found. I wrote a, uh, a PhD dissertation, doctoral dissertation, on, uh, on it was a comparative literature degree, and my uh, idea, actually the topic that was given to me was a comparison of Franz Kafka, which hopefully some people know, and Rabbi Nachman Abratzov, which also some people know. So I was given the task of comparing these two writers, both of whom happen to be Jewish, both of whom happen to write stories, uh, both of whose stories are sometimes pretty hard to understand, a little strange, a little bizarre. So my task was to find it was to compare them somehow, find a way to compare them, a method to compare them. So I spent a few years in graduate school doing that, and just this spring handed in this here dissertation and uh, got my degree. So in the course of things, I had to try a couple of different avenues and a couple of different uh, possibilities of ways to compare uh, these two writers, Kafka and Nachman. And we can talk about them in a little bit more depth if anyone would like. Um, so what I uh, wound up doing was coming up with sort of formulating a theory, which is certainly at least to some extent defensible, but is to a larger extent also completely up for question and up for discussion about exactly what Jewish literature is. When we talk about uh, Jewish literature, talk about the people of the book, all these things that we're calling, I mean, the Jewish people obviously have a propensity for and a history of study and text and learning and writing and all this. So the question is, is there something about Jewish literature, um, even if you want to say Hasidic literature in particular, but in general Jewish literature, is there something distinct, is there something unique, is there something that sets it apart from any other kind of literature, like you could say Italian literature, English literature, Shakespeare, all this, yeah? Uh, you could say, you know, that's a thing unto itself, just like Jewish literature is something to itself. You know, written by a certain people, written by people who have certain beliefs, um, and so on. So that's what it has in common. But then we have to ask the question, do any two Jews agree on anything? Do any two Jews like the same thing? And the answer to those is probably not, right? So how can it be that uh, there's enough in common amongst uh, a people so diverse as the Jewish nation to uh, write literature that you can identify right away and say, oh, that's Jewish literature? Because, most likely, two Jews don't agree on anything. Uh, no two Jews probably believe exactly the same way, or daven exactly the same way, or live exactly the same way. And there are people, uh, a whole range of people across the spectrum, as we know, of the extent to which people have grown up uh, with the Jewish education, Jewish background, 
to what extent people uh, integrate the teachings of the Torah and a Torah lifestyle into their day-to-day -day life and so on and so forth. So considering all those things, I thought this would be a good way to talk about Kafka and Reb Nachman Bratzelver. Reb Nachman Bratzelver, uh, for those who haven't come across him yet, was a gra uh, great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. His mother's uh, mother was the daughter of the Baal Shem Tov. So he was, uh, he was descended from, obviously, uh, about as prestigious as Hasidic lineage as you could imagine. He uh, was born in 1772, the year that the Magad of Mizrich passed away, and he lived only about 38 years, he died in 1810. And uh, uh, while he was a Hasidic Rebbe, in the way we think of a Hasidic Rebbe, you know, he had his courts and his uh, Hasidim around him, they had their own Nagunim, they had their own uh, Torahs, you know, he taught Torahs, gave, said, said Divrei Torah, said Sichas, so on and so forth, and these things were written down and became part of the Bratzlov, uh, the Torah of Bratzlov, the teachings of Bratzlov. He also wrote stories, <coughs> tales, real, actual stories that don't resemble, uh, as far as I've come across, much of anything else in the whole world of Hasidic literature. These are tales uh, which much more resemble something that we would think of as fairy tales, fairy stories. They're, they're not about uh, Rebelach and Balagala, you know, a wagon driver, and they were going along a town in Russia and they got stuck in the mud and they went into the tavern. And These stories are about uh, kings and princes, about uh, maidservants in, a, in the palace of the king. They're about uh, uh, a whole bunch of uh, different characters that you might find in any folklore, any uh, folk history or uh, national tales, cultural tales that come up in any country, in the Ukraine, in Poland, in Germany, in France, you'll find uh, elements that are common all over the place. And these stories, which Rabbi Nachman originally told in Yiddish, were translated by his uh, directive into Hebrew and printed in a Hebrew-Yiddish edition. Um, the idea for them being most, uh, as you know, most Jewish scholarly literature is printed in, in Hebrew. But he wanted, Reb Nachman wanted the, he wanted to print in Yiddish also so that women and uh, less learned people and so that everyone would have access to his stories. So he was obviously trying to accomplish some things with his literature. On the other hand, Kafka, the other focus of my uh, research in particular, was uh, not born into the traditional community, into the orthodox, what we would sometimes, maybe I would argue, inappropriately. So it was a traditional community. He didn't grow up in a uh, traditionally observant way of life. He was born in Czechoslovakia, actually in uh, Austria-Hungary, which, which was Czechoslovakia for a while, now the Czech Republic. He uh, was born in Prague, 1883. His, his father had actually le uh, was born in what we think of as the shtetl, in a small town in, uh, in uh, further eastern Europe, eastern uh, Czechoslovakia. And when the, uh, when the Great Emancipation, which we'll talk about a little bit more at length, um, came about, he left the shtetl, left the small, very insular, uh, Yiddish-speaking, very, at least outwardly observant uh, community and moved to the big city and set up a business and sent his children to, to the public schools, which were the German language, German-speaking schools, where instead of studying Mishnah and Chumash uh, all day, they studied uh, German literature, romantic literature, they studied philosophy, they studied world geography, Latin, Greek, classics, so on and so forth. So Kafka went to university, uh, took a law degree, like many Jewish boys do, got a job as a lawyer, uh, but really spent most of his life, spent most of his energy anyway, uh, writing. He wrote stories, wrote short stories. He tried to write a few novels. It's arguable if they were ever really finished. He carried on uh, extensive correspondence with, um, with, with a whole range of friends, some of whom were academics, some of whom were uh, business people, with uh, girlfriends that he had in different places in Berlin and Prague, all over uh, the German-speaking world and produced about seven or eight or nine volumes, all told, of uh, literature in the course of his life. Um, and also died at a young age, like Rib Nachman. 
So I had to come up with a way to compare these, uh, these two figures, who, even though one was born Jewish and the other was born Jewish, meaning their mothers were Jewish, and you know, where you go from there is uh, anybody's discussion. I tried to isolate some things about their lives or about their uh, particular, the way they wrote, what they wrote about, uh, how they thought about the world, that, would, that we can identify them as particularly Jewish. You can say there's, there's something essentially Jewish about them. There's, a, there's an element of uh, Jewish. So of course we know in Chassidus, certainly we talk about the Pintaliyid. We say that every Jew, uh, we learn in Tanya, that every Jew has a, uh, a nefesh has a, something within him or her, which we call, which Alpha Rebbe calls a chelak mamamish. We heard that phrase a couple of times so far in your visit here. Um, that every Jew has something in him or her that's innately and inseparably and uniquely bound to a Kaddish Baruch bound to God, right? So this is a, uh, a theory that, or this is the Altrebbe's opinion, this is his expressing the essence of what a Jew is and why a Jew is different than, than uh, any, a member of any other nation. But when you come to university and you're trying to write a dissertation, you can't very well say, well, how can they be alike? One is a Jew, this one is also a Jew, you know. So they're similar, pinfully, yeah, it's finished, close the book. You know, it takes up three quarters of a page, and you know, what's there to talk about at the dissertation defense? How are you going to write your articles? So uh, I took a few more pages than that. I wound up taking uh, a few more pages than just one line, and I tried to flesh it out a little bit and give some particular examples and show uh, what I had come up with in the research. Um, I want to make sure we leave time for discussion, so let me go through this a little bit. I did talk about the Pintaliyid. I did talk about the essence of the Jew and the Kili. I was a little tricky about it. I wasn't so straightforward with it. I talked about it, I uh, used some academic terms, used some theory terms, tried to sort of be mildish in uh, academic kite. What I talked about is that, uh, is that a Jew is always a Jew. And what does that mean in particular? That Jewish literature is always Jewish literature because the Jewish people are always in what I call a crisis of modernity. You know, people say, you hear this quite frequently, people say, you know, why do you dress like you do? Why do you uh, walk around like you do, you know, with a hat on, with a beard? They say, this is not the 18th century. This is the 20th century. You have to realize you have to keep with the times, be modern, the whole thing. So I postulate, or I say that, uh, well, Jews today say, well, you know, today is modern times. You could make that argument at any point in history, if you think about it. A, th a thousand years ago, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, you could say, well, today is modern times, because it really is always modern times. There's, we, always have, we always have had a Torah since the giving of the Torah sign. Since Mount Torah, we've always had a Torah way of life. We've, we've always had the teachings of the sages. We've always had a, a, a Torah that we read three times a week in the shul, uh, at, at minimum. So, and at the same time, there's always been a world around us, a modern world, with its temptations, with its philosophies, with its own views on how things should work and how people should live, and almost always, that world that surrounds the Jewish people, or the Jews, wherever they're living, is to some degree, a greater or lesser extent, in contrast. It clashes, to some degree, with, uh, with a traditional Jewish lifestyle, with the way of Jewish life. So, we can talk about that at, more, at greater length, but the fact of the matter is, a Jew, the Jews, have always had to, to some, in some way, reconcile, had to, uh, had to bring into some kind of harmony, at least a workable harmony, the difference between this, this Torah that teaches you you have to keep Shabbos and there's some kinds of foods you can eat, you should eat, you should eat matzah, you should eat Pesach, you shouldn't eat uh, pig, you shouldn't eat milk and meat together, these things, where society says that, that those things are okay. Um, those are just examples. Other than how do you think about God? I mean, our society today is a little bit skeptical of the idea of God, and on the other hand, Torah tells us we believe in God. So how do we reconcile these two things? This is a crisis. This is always a uh, crisis with a small c. I mean, it shouldn't. I guess it could keep you up at night, but uh, 
it's, this is something that Jews have always had to deal with and have frequently dealt with through literature. Um, I think, I would argue, that uh, if you look into, uh, into the Gemara, the Gemara that you're learning, Mishnayis that you're learning, Siddhas that we're, that we're learning before we dive in, in the morning, these, these issues are dealt with. If it were easy, if it were simple, and if there were no challenges, if there were no questions, how to keep halacha properly, how to keep Shabbos properly, how to write a get properly, uh, how to think, how to believe, how to believe in God, how to believe in the coming of Mashiach. We wouldn't need all of this literature. Why would we have all this literature? We would have, you know, a little list of rules, believe in God, don't eat pig, don't go to McDonald's, these things. We'd go, okay, so we do them, so no, it's fine. But the fact of the matter is, there's always this Christ, there's always, we're always sort of torn. We're sort of with one foot in one world, one foot in the other, trying to think, how can I live in the world, and have a job, have a family, uh, pay my bill, and at the same time, lead a Torah lifestyle. So what I, what I maintain is that uh, Jewish literature, including the writings of the sages, and I guess we would say a minor lahavdil between, uh, between modern Jewish literature, to some extent it's still trying to deal with those same issues, still trying to say how do we live as Jews, what does it mean to be a Jew, how does a Jew believe, how does a Jew live. Um, very quickly, the, the, uh, one of the main points of my research, because I looked so much into Kafka, was the, uh, was the German-Jewish world, the German-speaking Jewish world, which was Germany and Austria-Hungary, uh, a good part of Europe. Um, in the middle 19th century, 130, 150 years ago, uh, was the first time uh, in, in such a major way, in a long time, was the first time ever, that Jews were allowed to leave their individual communities, were allowed to live in the major industrial centers, were allowed to uh, send their children to public schools, have them receive, you know, education on par with, uh, with the non-Jewish world. Um, but really the only thing Jews were prohibited from was uh, participating in the government. Jews were, to a large extent, were, were barred from the government. Um, but uh, the, uh, this time period, we call the Emancipation, or the Enlightenment, uh, resulted in, in a change in laws, a change of, uh, change of the world's view of the Jew that said, well, you know, we don't have to keep them separate, we don't have to keep them in their own separate communities, we'll allow them in into our society to a certain extent. Now, it's a, it's, a, it's a separate discussion to what extent Jews were actually allowed to participate in society. You know, there's, as you have today, as you have in any time, you have classes, you have cliques, you have uh, stratification of society that certainly kept Jews out of some of the upper circles. Even when Jews uh, began to accumulate large fortunes, they were still, of course, as, as you won't be surprised here, were still kept out of some circles of society. But people like Kafka were actually allowed to uh, to go to university and to hold jobs at, at more prestigious law firms, at international, uh, in, within, within international industries, and so on. So the question is, now that the Jews are quote-unquote emancipated, Jews are allowed to live in, uh, in, amongst Gentiles, uh, to what extent do they retain their Jewishness? How much do they stay Jewish? Uh, because what was demanded of a Jew to go, in order to go to university was you had to speak, you couldn't speak Yiddish, you couldn't go there and speak uh, Aramaic or Yiddish and like this. You had to speak German, you had to speak French, you had to speak English, whatever the language was of the country. Um, classes were on Saturday, what do you do? You can't go to Shul and Shabbat now you're expected in class. You have a business, you're trying to, um, you're trying to run a business. And a lot of people do, uh, do maybe do their shopping on Friday afternoon or Friday night or, or Saturday, whatever it is. How do you keep your business running uh, and, and observe Shabbos at the same time, keep the Sabbath at the same time? So this crisis was for the, uh, for the Jews that I was interested in looking at, which were Kafka, if you've heard of Gershom Scholem, uh, a great scholar of Kabbalistic literature, a secular scholar, not, a, uh, not what we would think of as a Talmud Chacham, but a, uh, an academic scholar who founded, really founded Jewish studies in the 20th century and was the director of, uh, of, Jew, of, Jewish, of uh, 
the study of mysticism in Jewish philosophy at Hebrew University when it was founded. Um, Walter Benjamin, I've come across his name very popular in the last couple of years, a cultural, cultural critic who was a friend of Scholem's. Um, Arthur Schnitzler, if anyone's come across his name, a very, very popular uh, writer in the 20s, teens, 20s, even into the early 30s, lived in Vienna. Um, as we speak right now, there's a major motion picture being made and a major play on Broadway, um, which are both uh, which are both based on works written by Arthur Schnitzler. So he's someone who's still, at least in the public's consciousness. I can't remember, but I'll tell you what it is. I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. It's the one with uh, what's her name, Tom Cruise's wife, that everyone's talking about. That's based on a play by Schnitzler. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Someone said it? I think that's the one. How do you know that Dutch was being Yeshiva all day? Okay, it's a personal question. <coughs> why, why did uh, Jews like Kafka write what they did? I, I'm sort of hesitant to take time, but I'll, maybe I'll read to you just a little bit about, uh, of, uh, just as an example of what Kafka wrote. Why did, uh, these, why did, he, why did he write what he wrote? Uh, it's my humble opinion that Kafka was really torn between once he found out what uh, Judaism was in the course of his short life, as I say, he only lived to be about 40, 41, he came to a, a greater appreciation of what, uh, what, at least what he perceived as a more authentic Judaism was. As I mentioned, he lived in Prague, uh, spoke, grew up speaking German, went to university and read uh, you know, the classics of German and of Western literature, um, but was always struggling for something more, always looking for something more authentic, deeper, trying to find out who he was. And at the age of about 28 or so, got interested in Yiddishkeit, literally Yiddishkeit, like Yiddish culture and language, but also Yiddishkeit meaning, like we think of it, of a uh, of more traditional way of life. In this r rush to embrace all that the emancipation offered them, um, it seems as though the, uh, the forefathers, uh, or the, uh, you know, the, or the, the very fathers, the people of Catholic generation, sort of left a lot of things in, in the dust. Let me read to you just a little bit. There's a very interesting work of Kafka called Letter to His Father. Um, he wrote it when he was about 38. It was a, it's about a 45 or 50 page letter written to his father where he sort of takes his father to task for all the things that he never did for him and sort of blames his whole uh, messed up, mixed up, neurotic life on you know, his father giving him a hard time when he was seven years old. Um, and there are many things that he accuses his father of here, but one of them is that's, that's particularly telling. Now, I don't want to treat, I don't want to say this is fiction or nonfiction. It's, it's called letter to his father. He wrote it to his father. He gave it to his mother and asked her to give it to his. He never actually delivered the letter. As far, as far as we know, his father actually never saw the letter. But anyway, he felt like he had to get it off his chest. So here's a little bit of what he wrote. He's talking about his childhood, and he writes like this. He says, talking to his father. Later, as a young man, I could not understand how, with the insignificant scrap of Judaism you yourself possessed. You could reproach me for not making an effort to cling to a similar insignificant scrap. It was indeed, as far as I could see, a mere nothing, a joke, not even a joke. Four days a year you went to the synagogue, where you were, to say the least, closer to, to the indifferent than to those who took it seriously. You patiently went through the prayers as a formality, sometimes amazed me by being able to show me in the prayer book the passage that was being said at the moment. And for the rest, so long as I was present in the synagogue, this was the main thing, I was allowed to hang about wherever I liked. And so I yawned and dozed through the many hours. I don't think I was ever again so bored, except later at dancing lessons. I did my best to enjoy the few little bits of variety there were, as for instance when the Ark of the Covenant was open, which always reminded me of the shooting galleries where a cupboard door would open in the same way whenever one hit a bullseye, except there was always something interesting that came out there, and here it was always just the same old dolls without heads. 
Incidentally, it was also very frightening for me there. Not only, as goes without saying, because of all the people one came in close contact with, but also because you mentioned once in passing that I too might be called to the Torah. That was something I dreaded for years. But otherwise, I was not fundamentally disturbed in my boredom, unless it was by the bar mitzvah. But that demanded no more than some ridiculous memorizing. In other words, it led to, it led to nothing more but some ridiculous passing of an examination. And so far as you, can, you were concerned, by little, not very significant incident, as when you were called to the Torah, and passed in, in what to my own way of feeling was a purely social event, or when you stayed in the synagogue for prayers for the dead and when I was sent away. He goes on at length, a few pages about that. He says, a few pages later, he says, at bottom, this is Kafka's member speaking to his father, at bottom the faith that ruled your life consisted in your believing that the, in, the, in the unconditional rightness of the opinions of a certain class of Jewish society, and hence actually, since these opinions were part and parcel of your own nature in believing in yourself. Even in this, there was still Judaism enough, but it was so little to be handed on to the child. It all dribbled away while you were passing it on. The, uh, you know, I'm going to leave out some of the things I'm going to talk about just to sort of get to the point, and then maybe we'll have some time for questions. Um, it seems to me as, there, as though this, what I talked about as a crisis of modernity is a, what they call a kulturkampf, a struggle in culture. As I mentioned, there are two competing sets of ideas, two competing sets of values. On the one hand, there's the desire to be normal, to be like everyone else, right? To participate in, this, in the society, to be successful, successful in one's business. And then, to some extent, there's, there's a desire to, uh, to be a Jew, to, be, to live as a Jew, whatever that means. Um, the problem here, uh, it seems to me from what Kafka is talking about in this passage that I just read you, is that, uh, is that one side really isn't given its fair share. You're not comparing two equal things here, because the Judaism side, uh, is not get presented with any kind of liveliness, doesn't have any kind of what we call in yeshiva, in this yeshiva, chayas. There's nothing alive to it. Kafka criticizes his father for uh, presenting this, this old, stale Judaism, which is really more of a social ritual than anything else. And he says, as you were trying to hand me this tiny little bit of Judaism, it was so small, it sort of blew away in the wind, and there was really nothing for me left, nothing left for me to cling on to. Um, we, uh, I was speaking with someone this morning, I can't remember what I was talking about, oh, late, talking about the three, the three quote-unquote, the three great novels of the 20th century, um, two of which happened, were written by Jews and one of which is dealing with Jews. Um, so we see that what... Uh, what, what are those novels? Uh, according to some opinions, Ulysses, Man Without Qualities, and uh, Remembrance of Things Past. That there's a... Uh, a discontinuity or a disconnection between these two worlds. And what happens in the, in the uh, attempt to transmit a Judaism that doesn't have much liveliness to it, doesn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of depth to it, is that it can't, does, really doesn't stand a chance in competition with, um, with, the, uh, with society. I, wanted, I was going to talk about a few other people, I'm going to just mention them quickly. Uh, Yitzchak Bashev, a singer, if anyone's come across him, a uh, Yiddish writer, died about six or seven years ago, who won the Nobel Prize. Um, uh, the other, quote-unquote, Jewish language uh, Nobel winner is, is Shmuel Yosef Agnon, uh, who, lived, who was actually born in Eastern Europe and lived in Berlin for a time, but then uh, came to Israel and lived there. Died about 1970, I think. Um, who, both of them were very deeply connected to the traditional world of Eastern Europe. Uh, in this book, which I was going to read you a little bit of, um, in my father, if, if you've read anything of I.B. Singer, if you've read uh, Sutton and Gore, or if you've written, read any of the novels, um, Shadows on the Hudson just came out last year. 
Um, this uh, is very different. It's a book called uh, In My Father's Court, Manhattan's Bezdenspiel. His father was a actual was actually a, a rabbi and a rabbinic judge in the suburb of Warsaw. So Singer recounts as a child in a series about 35 or 40 or 50 little vignettes, three, four, five pages of cases that came in front before his father, of characters who appeared in uh, in the court in the Bezdin in, in, uh, in front of his father for a dintoira or for a psak or for a get or whatever it happened to be, um, and. What, where in, uh, in his other writing, there are some very wild, very fanciful, very strange, um, really bizarre things that, uh, that Singer talks about. Here, in this, in this uh, My Father's Court, there's a very warm, very vivid um, portrait of the real life, the real um, bread and butter of what Jews were thinking about, talking about um, just before the First World War. Um, why do... I'll try to talk a little bit about why these people wrote as they did to sort of try to reconcile in their own minds or give voice to or express or give a reason for the, their, their perception of the difference of the, the gap between, uh, between what they knew what they themselves were Jews and what they saw around them, which was the society around them, uh, that they found themselves in. Let me just add, add a little bit about why uh, I could make an argument that it could be valuable to read these and to gain and to get some insight from uh, from what these writers have to say. As I said at the beginning, if, you, if anyone would, you know, if you'd rather learn Mishnayis, rather learn a Sikh or a Mimer, I would be the first one to tell you that that's, that might be more more worthwhile than this. It seems to me from this kind of literature we get insight into how people have thought and how people have uh, dealt with their with their situations, with their own crises, with the crises they saw around them. But it's not the same. It seems to me as the kind of knowledge that we get from learning something in Siddhis, from learning a Gemara. So on, uh, it's not. Uh, it's not. Uh, uh, I'm looking for the right word. I can't find it. It's not. Uh, we don't have an actual concept of knowledge added to our knowledge base. What we have is a little bit of insight into how another person might have thought, might have reacted to a situation, so on. For example, there's an article which I hope to find. I, I couldn't put my finger on it. Written by Naftali Lowenthal. If anyone has met him at a pagisha or had experience with him or seen his writings. He writes a lot for, uh, for the Lubavitch publications. He wrote, uh, I think he's working on his second or third book now, publishes with academic presses. He lives in London and is very interested in uh, writing and bringing to the world attention different concepts in Hasidus. And actually right now, I think, I think, right, is working on a concept, on a project of uh, Hasidus, Jewish thought and modernity, trying to, trying to give his spin on how uh, Hasidus takes a look at, at the modern world. Wrote an, he wrote, Naftali wrote an article, Naftali Lowenthal, wrote an article uh, for Wellspring, if anyone ever sees Wellspring, about five or six years ago, 1991, 92, something like this, I can give you the reference if anyone's interested, where he wrote about Kafka. And he said that if there would have been a mitzvah tank, if there would have been, you know, one of these Winnebagos with a picture of the Rebbe on the side and, and three or four bachram with, uh, you know, candlesticks and tefillin and uh, menorah and the whole thing, that would have driven through the suburbs of Prague, Kafka certainly would have grabbed onto them and would have uh, asked all his questions about Hasidus, probably would have wound up in Morristown learning for uh, you know, two weeks or for a year, or whatever it would have been, and uh, really, most likely, would have uh, would have turned out to be much more of a, an observant Jew than he actually did, probably more of the kind of person that he wanted to be. He actually did have a friend. Just one second, I'm almost done, and I'll, I'll take any questions you want. Um, Kafka actually did have a friend named, uh, named Yuri Langer. If anyone's come across the book Nine Gates to the Hasidic Mysteries, a fellow about Kafkaism, a little bit younger, who actually left Prague, left the you know well-to-do, normal suburbs of Prague, and traveled, took a train to Ger, to Gur, which is in uh, Poland, a suburb of Warsaw. Is that right? To Gur? Yeah, and I think. 
and uh, became a Hasid of Gore and came home with a long coat, with a beard, with a big black hat, freaked his parents out. I don't know if anyone can imagine what that's like. But uh, came back into the regular middle class, well-to-do suburbs, um, smelling like and looking like and sounding like and talking like a real Eastern European Jew and flipped everyone out. And Kafka was very interested in this and spent a lot of time talking to them. And some theorized that when he wrote uh, The Metamorphosis, if anyone's come across that, he had in mind, he was thinking about, uh, could be, I'm not sure. In any case, what we have is an insight into how Kafka thought and what he was thinking about and how he expressed it through literature. There's one thing, maybe I'll just take a minute to read you. Um, yeah, you know, I think I'll do that. This is, in, this is a, a well-known passage of Kafka's take just about two or three minutes to read. If anyone's read the trial, this is sort of one of the central points of it, but it's, uh, it's to, given as one of the two introductory parables in Kafka's complete story. And uh, to me, this is the essence of Kafka, and to, to a large extent, the essence of what the modern Jews write about. So it goes like this. It's called Before the Law. The what? Before the Law. Before the Law stands a doorkeeper. To this doorkeeper, there comes a man from the country and prays for admittance to the law. Reading it in English, written in German, it's, it, there are some resonances that don't come across in English, but some things do come through pretty well. Before the law stands a doorkeeper. To this doorkeeper, there comes a man from the country and prays for admittance to the law. But the doorkeeper says that he cannot grant admittance at the moment. The man thinks it over and then asks if he will be allowed in later. It is possible, said the doorkeeper, but not at the moment. Since the gate stands open, as usual, and the doorkeeper steps to one side, the man stoops to peer through the gateway into the interior. Observing that, the doorkeeper laughs and says, if you were drawn to it, just try to go in despite my veto. But take note, I am powerful, and I am only the least of the doorkeepers. From hall to hall, there is one doorkeeper after another, each more powerful than the last. The third doorkeeper is already so terrible that I cannot even bear to look at him. These are difficulties that the man from the country has not expected. The law, he thinks, should surely be accessible at all times and to everyone. But as he now takes a closer look at the doorkeeper in his fur coat, his big sharp eyes, and his long thin black beard, he decides that it is better to wait until he gets permission to enter. The doorkeeper gives him a stool and lets him sit down on one side of the door. There he sits for days and years. He makes many attempts to be admitted and wearies the doorkeeper by his importunity. The doorkeeper frequently has little interviews with him, asking him questions about his home and many other things, but the questions are put indifferently, as great lords put them, and always finish with the statement that he cannot, let, cannot be let in yet. The man, who has furnished himself with many things for his journey, sacrifices all he has, however valuable, to bribe the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper accepts everything, but always with the remark, I am only taking it to keep you from thinking that you have omitted anything. During these many years, the man fixes his attention almost continuously on the doorkeeper. He forgets the other doorkeepers, and this first one seems to be the sole obstacle preventing access to the law. He curses his bad luck. In his early years, boldly and loudly, later as he grows old, he only grumbles to himself. He becomes childish, and since in his year-long contemplation of the doorkeeper he has come to know even the fleas in his fur collar, he begs the fleas as well to help him and change the doorkeeper's mind. At length, his eyesight begins to fail but he does not know whether the world is really darker or whether his eyes are only deceiving him. Yet in his darkness, he is now aware of a radiance that streams inextinguishably from the gateway of the law. Now he has not very long to live. Before he dies, in all his experiences in these long years, uh, before he dies, all his experiences in these long years gather themselves in his head to one point, a question he has not yet asked the doorkeeper. He waves him nearer, since he can no longer raise his stiffening body. The doorkeeper has to bend low toward him, for the difference in height between them has altered much to the man's disadvantage. What do you want to know now, asked the doorkeeper. You are insatiable. 
Everyone strives to reach the law, says the man. So how does it happen that for all these many years, no one but myself has ever begged for admittance? The doorkeeper recognizes that the man has reached his end, and to let his failing senses catch the words, roars in his ear. No one else could ever be admitted here since this gate was made only for you. I am now going to shut it. Uh, take questions just one second. We just add a few things that uh, it seems to me what we gain from reading these things. The uh, one, we always have to look at what's the Musar Haskell for us. What do we learn from this? Is uh, to live our Judaism to whatever extent we integrate it into our lives, however we uh, decide to make our commitment to Judaism, to live it in a way such that for us, for ourselves, and God willing in the right time for our children, um, we won't be presenting it as an insignificant scrap. We won't be presenting it as a lifeless uh, thing, a lifeless relic. We won't be presenting it as a cold, impersonal, uh, impassive guard who doesn't let us in through the gate. And that means that as we go along, we have to, when we have questions, we have to answer them for ourselves. Or we have to get help from our teachers, from our friends, from the things that we learn, from the people that we learn with. Um, I used to have a discussion, well, I actually still do have a discussion, with uh, my shliach in Boston. I would always ask, you know, isn't it enough? Why does the whole world have to learn Hasidus? What's the, what's the point of learning Hasidus? Why, why I said, isn't it enough? Doesn't God just want, once you do the mitzvahs, once you put on tefillin, isn't that enough? Once you did daven, okay, so you daven, you say the words. You have to, you have to understand to such great depth, you have to, uh, you know, you have to have these tremendous kavanas, these great intentions every time you light the menorah or, uh, you know, whatever it is that happens to be. So the question is, do we have to, is it enough to just do, or do we actually have to understand also? And the fact of the matter is, is that all of us come into this crisis of modernity, this tension, or most of us, I think, speaking for myself, come into this tension between the way we want to live as Jews and the world around us, and we have to, uh, it says in Perkevus, Dama Lahashib, you have to know what to answer. Dama Lahashib, Lapi Chorus. You have to know when you have a challenge, when you have a question from, uh, that, and the question could come from your friends, could come from your family, could come from things that you know uh, in philosophy, in literature, in history. You have to be able to understand things from a Torah perspective enough so that you can uh, give an answer which is satisfactory to you and satisfactory to children because children, like uh, not every child is as weird as Kafka, that's for sure. <laughs> but I can tell you, being the father of, uh, of small children, one who's two and a half and is now asking why, why, why does it have to be like this, everything, is that while we can certainly fool ourselves and we can convince ourselves of certain things and rationalize certain things, children are not fooled. Children are absolutely not fooled. And to some extent there has to be in us a child, a child who's not fooled, and a child who, uh, who believes, and a child who can see things as clearly as they can possibly be seen without all the uh, coverings over of rationalization that we often indulge in. So not only to answer to our, our, our children, but also to answer in the child within, within us, we have, to have, uh, we have to have ways of explaining, ways of understanding uh, ourselves and our lives as Jews, and, and our whole nation and people and destiny as Jews, in such a way that uh, that when the tension of modernity comes, when the crisis of what do I do versus what should I be doing, uh, we have resources and we have understandings and we have perceptions that uh, help us to live to the, to the best, in the best way we can, best way we possibly can. So let me, uh, if anyone has things that you'd like to ask more about or things that I didn't mention, things I did mention, yeah, go ahead. I have two questions. Sure. Um, is that from Traveling, uh, between, between the Jewish identity and, and uh, 
But one thing to look at is this letter to his father. Okay. Very important. Now, depending on how you read certain things, uh-huh. see, one one thing that people love about Kafka is you can really read you can read read it any way you like. Yeah. Um, in the course of my research, I came across I took I took one story. I think we spoke about it, right? That's yeah. what the the judgment. It's about a twelve or fifteen page story where Kafka describes interaction between a father and son, and what happens with them. Uh, they have an argument, and the son uh, goes off and winds up committing suicide. We think, and. Uh, I've read interpretations of this from a Jewish perspective, obviously, from a Christian perspective, you know, believing that the sun is, is, the, is the Christological form of God, uh, from a Buddhist perspective, from a Zen perspective, from a Freudian and from a Jungian perspective, perspective of philosophy, uh, just about any, any possible interpretation you can understand, and each one sort of brings psukim to prove himself, you know, says, oh, from this word, what copy means is this, from that word, what it means from that, um, and in a, in a way, all those things are legitimate, but in another way, uh, I think my reading is the best. So if you look at some stories of Kafka's, for example, um, report to an academy about a gorilla, a taken prisoner, and he's on a ship, and he's brought to an academy, and he's examined, and uh, you know, they do all these uh, tests on him and try to you know, show how he's really like a man. The uh, animal socializes himself and learns how to drink and learns how to curse like the sailors on the boat and learns how to speak the academic language of the professors. Well, if you know that Jews in Germany used to refer to Jews, or that people German used to refer to Jews as gorillas or as apes or as monkeys or something. You have a different appearance. So if you read the story in such a way, or if you read uh, the trial, uh, if you can read the trial, I I wouldn't say it's the the best of Kafka's writing. Um, If you read uh, some of his his letters written back and forth, he corresponded with Max Brod, who was his best friend, corresponded to a a small extent with Martin Buber um, after hearing some of his lectures. If you read some of the things that he wrote, if you read some of the things he wrote about literature and about Jewish literature, he brought a friend of his who was a Yiddish actor, uh, an actor in a, in, a, in a Yiddish drama troupe, brought him from uh, Warsaw to perform in Prague. And he gave an introductory sort of little, uh, little drusha to, to introduce his friend. And he talks about Yiddish language. And he's speaking, to, he's speaking in German to a German, German audience. And he says, when you'll hear the poetry, the, the poetry and when you'll, when you'll see the play, he says, you'll understand much more of Yiddish than you think. Because I'm just playing with him. Second, yeah. give me a couple of minutes. And second question. Second question. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit. I've read the history of the Christian composition, and uh-huh. uh, I know this part from uh, this area. Yeah. I, I know about uh, about composers. So I've this part of one of the main composers, Gustav Mahler. Right. And um, but I would like to ask about Wigmund's work. Uh, what was his? Uh, how did he deal with the situation? It's a pretty... It's I know about the system, but yeah. he had a problem, yeah. eventually went to the other side. Right. But if anyone's heard of Mahler, the composer Mahler, lived in Vienna uh, right around the turn of the century and had great aspirations to be a, to be a famous... He wanted to be a famous composer. He was a conductor. He was a conductor. Then, when, then how, do you, how do you become really the top of your profession? Well, you can't do it as a Jew. So eventually he converted to Catholicism and right away became Kapellmeister. What is it? Uh, he became... Yeah, yeah. Um, Freud, of course, never converted, never converted, and on the other hand, never really made such a big deal out of his Judaism. Actually, he spoke to B'nai B'rith, uh, I think on his 50th or 60th or 70th birthday, maybe it was. He said, it's a little bit funny that the, the B'nai B'rith of Vienna uh, honored him, you know, Sigmund uh, Freud, this uh, upstanding member of the Jewish community. He said, it's a little bit funny that they've chosen to honor me because maybe the greatest, uh, my greatest contribution in affirming my uh, Jewish identity was that I never denied it which tells you about him and also about the fact that at that time many people were in fact trying to cover over the Judaism, change their names, convert, whatever it took, and you know, to what extent it uh, succeeded or failed. 
Um, there are a few people these days, Peter Gay writes a lot about Freud and his culture and his uh, acknowledgement of his Judaism, but there's a very interesting book called uh, Freud's Moses, Judaism Terminal, Terminal and Interminable by Yosef Haim Yerusham, which is at Columbia. Um, he takes a few examples from Freud's life. You know, we, we assume that Freud was, like I'm talking about Kafka, a university educated, very westernized German speaker, uh, and not very literate, not very lettered in traditional Jewish life. But he, uh, Yerushalmi, looks at a Tanakh, a copy of Tanakh, that Freud's father gave him as a gift, I think on his confirmation, 21st birthday, something, with uh, a lengthy inscription in Hebrew, with many psukim from, uh, from the Navi. And uh, he relates his correspondence to a few things that Freud wrote in a few different letters, and says that while we think of Freud as a very secularized person, Freud actually was someone with a great knowledge and appreciation of uh, Jewish culture and Jewish literature, and so on, and uh, wasn't anywhere near as uh, secularized or distant from knowledge of Judaism as his commonly thought. He's a very interesting, there's a lot to talk about with Freud. And we should get into it from the beginning until Freud's last book, which was Moses and Manatinus. I'm trying to get almost a summary of the personification of Kafka, which has a certain connotation in our times, and the sense of the world of Red Dockman, if you're trying to summarize each one of them in the contrast Here's what I, the, the sort, of, sort of the maskana, the agreement that I came up with, how I managed to reconcile them, is that uh, if if Nachman is a, is a typical Jewish writer, even though he writes in a, in a form that's not common to, to rabbinic literature at the time, what Reb Nachman is talking about is exile, galut, and geula, redemption, and how does he actually do, does he do that, and what, uh, what literary style forms and, and figures does he use, that's a, that, that's a whole discussion. But at the same time, when we say, like we point out, we say Kafkaesque, it's very common to say this or that is a, you know, it's a Kafkaesque thing, and, you know, it could be anything from a TV commercial to a... What exactly do they mean by that? The, usually it's, it's sort of shorthand slang for uh, discontinuous, um, depersonalized, bizarre, strange, out of place, surreal. And uh, on the one hand, those things, I mean, uh, on the one hand, you know, it's, it's very shorthand and it can't uh, really capture the, the essence. On the other hand, that, that, those adjectives and that whole concept sort of, in a certain way, does summarize the situation of the Jew in the modern world. Like a Woody Allen, like a Woody Allen movie? Okay, sure. It's strange, it's weird, but it's, it's out of sorts, it's out of place, it's trying to be one thing in a wholly different place, uh, feeling very alienated within one's body, within one's very person, and that, I think, uh, captures at least some of the points of uh, a Jew in the modern world. You said it's a lot of suffering in A lot of suffering in Congress, suffering in the exile. The book by uh, Ari Kaplan is called uh, The Outpouring of the Soul, which is teachings of Reverend Nathan of Rev. Love. Yeah. In it, I just wanted to read something that I wrote. Sure, sure. Yeah. In it, he, uh, he uh, spoke of the 49 gates of Teshuvah, yeah. and that there were these gates of Teshuvah that were open to a human being in order yeah. to open it. all had to do with their hearts yeah. in approaching God. And this is sort of what I gathered from the, the story that was read. It just sort of came to me. And yeah. I wrote, it seems that the doorkeeper represents the Elohim of Hashem, the angels who are the owners of the real truth. Also, the doorkeepers could be the pious ones in the community who seemingly hold the keys to the knowledge of God, thereby whom Kafka felt intimidated by. Kafka has embraced the secular world and has given his soul to it. Perhaps the doorkeepers are limitations Kafka has created for himself to keep himself from the revelation that all that was needed for him to give is his heart to Hashem. The line, the door was only created for you, was Kafka's complex of terminal uniqueness which kept him from the truth that is open for all Jews when they open their hearts to Hashem. 
which sort of seems to me what this is all about is, is it's an issue of the heart, not an issue of the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone else. Yeah. Just a comment. Um, when I first uh, became in touch with uh, Lubavitch, and then uh, I found out about the Rebbe, the rabbi in uh, Australia, and then at some point uh, I came further reading, and I wanted to go to see the Rebbe, but uh, one of the things that in myself that stopped me psychologically was I dreaded, I dreaded the possibility of going to see this uh, great uh, rabbi and having uh, religious people stop me. You know, I had no idea how it worked, but I just knew uh, having had enough experiences. And so even though when I came to New York, I uh, didn't go out there mm-hmm. because I dreaded this kind of uh, possible conflict that, you know, you couldn't, couldn't go to see. Mm-hmm. And today I just heard a story of uh, somebody who had gone to see the Rebbe when they were young. And they didn't know uh, the actual um, technique of the ritual, which was that you talk to the Rebbe first, and then he gives you the dollar. And what this uh, child did was uh, saw the dollar, put their hand out because they thought they were supposed to do that. And they took the dollar, and then when they went to talk to the Rebbe, mm-hmm. uh, said behind them, pushed them full force out of the way, and they were gone. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think that uh, what what is the story is totally, totally applicable to our lives today with all different aspects of Jews, whether they're intellectual or they're advanced in this way or that way, that we constantly put up, we constantly play the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. Not only are the other Jew, we see them sometimes as the gatekeeper, but we also very often play the gatekeeper. And I think it's, it's an extremely uh, potent mm-hmm. idea for us, whether it comes from Kafka or Nachman or from Talmud, right. it's still a, a very strong lesson for us. Right, right. Let me say one thing in response to that. I was speaking with someone uh, in New York a couple weeks ago, and I was there for uh, whatever it was, Mincha, Shabbos afternoon, and uh, I was standing around talking to someone, and then they, they banged on the table and they said, in the next room we're going to make a minion for Myrev, and Davin Myrev and the end of Shabbos. And in his rush, in his great rush to get there, you know, to get there for Baruch Hu, this chassid, who he said must weigh 400 pounds, barreled over top of me and knocked me to the floor. And So he said, so it seems so strange to me that this guy, in such haste to go to a mitzvah, which is a good thing, you know, absolutely knocked me flat. You know, never mind, I was a guest and the whole thing. But anyway, what if I was a chassid also? You know, knocked me flat. 
So this, this thing that Kafka's talking about, about the gatekeeper, and this story that you just mentioned, um, the chassid, who was behind this little child, probably you know, wanted to get to the Rebbe, wanted to, you know, his chance to say something, which is a good thing, right? The fact of the matter is he shoved somebody else to do it. So it's two lessons for us. On the one hand, don't be, we shouldn't, you know, in, our, in the part of us that's trying to get closer to Yiddishkeit, to Torah, we should never be deterred by, you know, there, there, are, obst- there are certainly obstacles. Divine, whatever uh, providence ordained should be in our way, whatever Hashgacha Pratis, obstacles Hashgacha Pratis, divine providence puts in our way, we have to know that we have to move past them and you just have to, you have to go where you're headed and not worry about what obstacles are in our way. On the other hand, there's another part of us which having, you know, been exposed to, to traditional Judaism, having been exposed to yeshiva, knowing what we all know about Judaism, that we're going to go out and in a sense be shluchim, be emissaries. And, t- you know, we're going to talk to people about our time in yeshiva, about our experiences, about our... Yeah, so we're going to... We can never be, God forbid, to be the person who's shoving someone else, who's pushing someone else, who's putting someone else, pushing someone else. And it's the smallest, smallest thing. You told one story, one little story. So, you know, someone gave a shove. What's the big deal? This guy that I talked to from Brooklyn, you know, okay, so one time a chassid stepped on your toes, you know, what's the big deal? It shows you, like Baal Shem taught, that the smallest, smallest things in life teach you tremendous great lessons. And that's to, uh, to you know, have, you know, we're all chassidim, we're all bittal, we're all very humble. That doesn't mean you can go step on somebody else's toes. Because, you know, where this other person is, it's not, it's not your business how humble the guy is. You don't have to treat him like a doormat. So uh, it's a very important lesson for us in conducting ourselves and how to deal with other people. Can I, can I and always put a positive uh, front on, on let me see if anyone else has. It draws great, you know, that, that brings up a good point because that draws great attention to, to Hasid in the, in the wrong way. You know, for, Has, for example, for Hasid to act up in a public place in an airport to shove in a line and be angry or to yell, it puts such a, uh, it puts such a negative image, you know, not just on that Hasid, but on, on all Hasidim. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's bad. Right. To the rest of the world, we all look alike. Even right. the whole world, we know we're all different. But any, anybody with a yarmulke. Right. You know, is already is one of them. So if, if you know you give an impression that that one of them is God forbid, you know, rude or polite or something, it uh, has pretty pretty long lasting negative consequences. So we have to always be mindful of that and always make everything we do. You know, even the smallest thing, when you think nobody's looking, you think, you know, here I am in the airport and who knows where? Who who knows me here? Believe me. Every everything, every movement is everything is important. Yeah. I, I have a lot of very comments and very reactions. Yeah. Okay. Whole, uh, sure. Mm-hmm. But um, it struck me. Uh, I read the child, and uh, it struck me <laughs> the whole the whole sense of persecution that he has about uh, being just being that he doesn't have the right to be, and being constantly questioned from all sides. And then um, he remarks about uh, what he told his father about how he probably wanted to be character.
here to show we'll all be good doorkeepers, and these, these doors we keep for each other open, our citizens and open Judaism to each other, and allow us to enter into uh, our, our world together, and, uh, you know, um, because we'll each be each other's path for each other, mm -hmm. a doorway to each other, so we can live the same house. Yeah, can I make sense? Sure. Um, I think about some other things that um, uh, when you uh, start to be about to shuv, I don't know if I qualify yet, but um, there's many, many absurd you're asking, things. You're asking, you're qualified. There's many absurd things that happen, and, and uh, many important things happen at every step. And, uh, you know, when we uh, have the Torah reading in the morning, this, uh, these 10 days that I'm here, I really want to uh, go up and do the mitzvah of uh, kissing the Torah. And every day, it's incredible. It's like, it's like a football team. <laughs> and I can't, I can't get it. And it's, it's happened every day. And it's, uh, I don't know what the word, I always forget the uh, divine providence. Yeah. So every day, it's like, whoa. And I, and, I, and I feel so aggressive to try to get in there. Yeah. And it's been terrible. You know, it's my, that. It's just like, <coughs> wherever I go, it's like, and, uh, uh, and it was uh, interesting to be caught up for Aliyah when, after about the fourth day here. I've only been up for Aliyah a few times ever. And in the few days that I was here, my Hebrew had taken a little bit of a quantum leap. Yeah. So it was the first time that I could... Uh, uh, watch the tour and translate yeah. while it was going. Uh -huh. So that's also the other side. I did get in there, yeah, yeah. but then I wanted to get back, and I was like, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So I think that uh, Kafka has uh, extremely uh, deep, deep understanding about it, many aspects. Even if you're very orthodox, there's still these um, absurd moments that life is actually absurd. Right. And one of the greatest uh, gifts that he had as a person as a human being, was to uh, give us this sense of Kafkaism, this, this uh, view of these small absurdities. Right. What attracted me to Kafka was uh, I, had, I felt I had a lot in common with him. He, for most of his life, was, I mean, as strange as he was, he was normal, quote-unquote, what the world thinks is normal. You know, like my mom would say, you know, he was supporting himself, he had his own job, eh, earning a living. He was just a regular person, but he wanted to be more Jewish, and he was spent uh, most of his life trying to get closer to that. At the very end of his life, 1923-24, after uh, the First World War, Germany was an economic collapse, you know, a loaf of bread cost 10 billion marks, whatever it was. He was living in an apartment in uh, Berlin, um, living, you know, he was reading by candlelight and cooking food on a little gas stove, probably starving to death and not able to afford much. He found someone to teach him Chumash with Rashi. And if you read in his diary there, he says, I've never been happier in my life. Operating. Learn so much about it. Okay. I'm around, so if anybody wants to talk more, I'm sure you can.